I think just based on the comments that we heard in the past 30 seconds, we do not have the right technology. When we all do the same things for our patients whose veins look the same to us and we get different results, that suggests to me a lack of understanding on our part about the disease process or a deficit in technology to treat this disease. Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to the Vein Podcast. Respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. So uh, welcome, everybody, to a, another uh, Vein Podcast with uh, Dr. Steve Elias, sponsored by uh, the Radcliffe uh, Vascular Group. And uh, we're happy to have uh, everyone here today. The motto of this podcast is respect the elders, embrace the new, and encourage the improbable and impractical without bias. So we have uh, today, the topic is superficial vein disease is dead. Long live superficial vein disease. And um, the idea behind this is when the king is dead, you then say to welcome the new king, long, long, the king is dead, long live the king. So I'm asking this question of our panelists, Lowell Kavnick, Ellen Dillahu, Alan Davies, and uh, Margaret Mann. And we're going to go through some questions that I have. And, and obviously, wherever the uh, discussion goes, that's where it goes. So, uh, Alan, you're up first. Okay. Here we go. How good are we at preventing superficial vein disease? The, the straightforward answer is we're not very good at all about prevent, preventing superficial venous disease. The only things that we can really do to help people is advocate that they don't really become obese. There is some evidence that uh, gentle and moderate exercise is protective, but if you get people who are, are hyper-exercising, that is actually a pre condition that will actually lead to varicose veins. And there is some increasing evidence to suggest that the more you exercise, if you're in the extreme bracket, you are more likely to get varicose veins. So those are sort of some very simplistic things. But other than that, I think we would all accept that the main reason that we get varicose veins is probably genetic. There is obviously a female disposi disposition with respect to parity. But I think those are the main things that I would want to comment on. There are obviously other epidemiological factors, such, a, such as smoking. There is some suggestion that if you look at all the very old Framingham data, that actually being hypertensive may be associated with the development of varicose veins. But I think probably, Steve, I've witted on long enough, and I'm sure somebody else would like to comment even further on that. Yeah, so, so Margaret, uh, do we... Do we want to, is it, should we be preventing superficial vein disease? Is it, is, it a, is it something we should pursue in that we think it's a goal we can achieve or, or should we just say, no, Alan just elucidated all the reasons why we probably cannot? Well, I, I completely agree with Alan. I think it is one of those things where it is a lifestyle issue, right? 
for many of these patients, um, their obesity, their smoking, their genetics are things that we really don't have a control over changing. Um, it's like telling someone who may have genetic history of, um, I don't know, I mean, many numbers, and I think that's one of the issues with US and healthcare and all of that. So many things like diabetes, so many things like hypertension are things that you could potentially prevent, but telling a patient to not eat high sugar diet, you know, not to do these things, try to lose weight is very difficult. With that said, I mean, I do think that there are some things you can do if there's some genetic history, um, you know, if they start to bad varicose veins, you know, compression stockings are helpful. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it probably is too difficult to tell someone not to do these things because many of these things we can't control. But, but don't you think, I mean, then, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but, but, uh, well, can we really prevent it that we may mitigate some in some people things developing, but can we give a list to people, if you do this, this, and this, you're not going to get varicose veins? Steve, there's no way that you can prevent varicose veins, especially if it's genetic. You can ease the course by early intervention. So you can, you can stop the, you can mitigate the progression. So what we do is really palliative. And I really don't think that until we get down to basic biology and figure out what the defect is genetically, can we really stop the varicose vein problems? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think, you know, it's not on the high list of, you know, diseases to cure in the world. Uh, you know, most people don't die from vein disease. Um, that's, that's the one good thing. So having said that, Ellen, I saved you not to answer this question, but to begin another question. Um, how good, now that we can't get rid of it, thank God, because we all treat vein disease. How good are we at uh, treating superficial vein disease? Ellen, what's your overall, are we, uh, are we uh, achieving an A, uh, a B minus, D plus? Where would you put us in, in the vein world in 2020? I would put us at an A minus in the immediate effects of treatment, and I would put us at a C minus in longevity, meaning that I think that our treatments for superficial vein disease today are worlds better than a decade ago and 10 worlds better than two or three decades ago. However, we, as very eloquently alluded to by the previous speakers, we can't prevent varicose vein disease. So we treat what we see, but then over time, we will see new disease. So I think we get a good grade in short follow-up and a mediocre to poor grade in long follow-up, just because we cannot prevent new disease. Right. Now, do you think, are we, there's obviously different types of, of superficial vein disease. I mean, we're going to, you know, you start from the tiniest telangiectasia, spider veins, reticular veins, you work your way up through the uh, varicosities and axial in, incompetence. Um, let's, in the theme that you just laid out, Ellen, Let's go with the, the beginning, which is, which ones are we really good in the, in the short term in doing? Is it, is it spiders, reticulars, varicosities, axial incompetence? Alan? Um, well, I think we're actually probably, it depends what your end point is, whether it's actually 
an occlusion rate or whether it's actually relief of patient symptomatology. So if we take truncal veins first. Well, well actually, wait, Alan, let me inter interrupt you. What do you think our endpoint should be? Well, I, I think my the endpoint should actually be inverted commas quality of life or pa patient satisfaction with the outcome. And after we've done an intervention, probably the, the easiest thing to measure is does somebody come back for a re-intervention, i.e. making the assumption that by not coming back for an intervention, they are probably happy with the end result. Now, I, I accept the criticism of that, but I think that's the one that's the easiest to measure worldwide. Yeah. is what your re-intervention rate is after a procedure. But I, I, I would completely agree with Eleanor. I, I may have given slightly worse marks than um, a, a, a minus. No, but, but Alan, Ellen was talking about what she gets. Oh, no, you, yeah. and I, you, and I may, <laughs> you and I may be at a C plus. You know, we we may be C plus. Ellen is an A minus. That's what she. Oh said. no, no, no! I, I, I'm more than happy to say that <laughs> Ellen's an A, a plus plus. That I'm, I'm more than happy to say that. But but I think we have to be real re, realistic. And you hear every saying about how excellent the patient results are. Now I would challenge most people. We we did a study. And I completely accept it was in the 80s when we, it was the dark ages. But the reality was that only about 75% of people overall were satisfied with their intervention with respect to varicose veins. And I think if you did a similar study now, I would challenge most people. If you got more than a good 90% satisfaction with the, your results, I think you'd actually be doing quite yeah, I mean, I mean, Lowell, do you, do you think that kind of jives down? Do you think most of your patients, about 90%, are relatively happy in the short term with, with what you've done? So that, that's the key, short term. We know that they're, and Alan, uh, I, I think you're, you're right about going re-intervention, but I think we have to really define that re-intervention because we know that there's a good recurrence rate in five years, upwards of 20, 25%. So if we, for the short term, Steve, I think you're absolutely correct. We do achieve patient satisfaction. Now the question is short term and what are we looking at? So that being said, um, I, I agree with, with uh, the previous speakers that, that uh, we do achieve a, a real good rate of satisfaction for the short term. For the procedures that we do, I still think that there's improvement because we don't have any one specific procedure that really is ultimate at this point. Yeah, and I let me let me hone down a little bit, Margaret. So let's talk about uh, spider and reticular vein. I mean, those to be give me. I, I I feel like cannot do as well with those as if I can stent a patient who has a chronic occlusion of their iliacs. You know, um, what do you think? Is that is this the hardest thing for us to treat, Margaret, in the superficial space, spider reticular veins, in terms of what Alan and Lowell said should be our endpoints, which is how the patients feel? I think the difficulty, I mean, technique-wise, I don't think it's more difficult than, I mean, certainly for me, doing no, no, a stent no. would be impossible. But, but not, I really not, think... Not, not right. to place the stent. I know. But what I'm saying is... I, right. I think it's because it's a cosmetic issue more so than a medical issue is, is the way I kind of feel like bottom line, right? Because at the end of the day for patients, it's really a matter of how much satisfaction they get out of the procedure. 
And it really depends on the patient. For them, if they see five spider vein, one patient may go, well, that's unacceptable for me. I can't have any spider vein. And that's very different than saying, gosh, you know, my legs feel a lot better after I've had endovenous ablation. And I think those cosmetic patients are more difficult because they have a higher expectation. Um, So I do think those are harder to treat. And even a little bit of poor outcome or hyperpigmentation, they're not going to be happy with. Um, So do we have, Ellen, Lowell, do you want to say something? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I do. I I think, Margaret, you're, you're spot on. Steve, you wrote a paper on this in terms of expectations. And I think because of sclerotherapy and phalangiectasia and reticular veins, as you said, it's really cosmetic and we need to develop the expectations. But Margaret, would you think it's more of an art form or a lot of art form in terms of how we handle uh, the cosmetic effects of phalangiectasia and reticular veins? I do. I mean, I, I do think, and and I don't know if it's a matter of of just that there's a paucity of set studies on it too, um, in terms of, you know, what's the concentration? How much do you put in? How much do you inject in each vein? I mean, everyone has a different theory about how they should do it. Um, at the end of the day, we kind of use our best guess. And honestly, many times, many different ways achieve the same outcome. So I don't know that there is a one way you know, and, and I think many times it's very patient dependent. Some patients do better than others. And I would do the same technique. And I don't know why one guy gets hyperpigmentation and another doesn't. So I do think there's an art form to it. Ellen, do we need, do we have the right technologies to treat spider veins now? Or would we all want, or would you want something that's, quote, better than what we have now? I think just based on the comments that we heard in the past 30 seconds, we do not have the right technology. When we all do the same thing for our patients whose veins look the same to us and we get different results, that suggests to me a lack of understanding on our part about the disease process or a deficit in technology to treat this disease. And I agree with everything that Lowell and Margaret have said. And I do the same thing. I inject everybody the same way. Some people are happy as clams. Some people are not happy at all with matting or hyperpigmentation or something like that. So it kind of reminds me of the old saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. I think we really need to understand these a little better before we can treat them in the best way possible. I, I, I agree with you. Um, it, it's just, we need, we just need better techniques or, or technologies that are much more predictable. Alan, shoot. No, I, well, I, I was just gonna comment that um, in, in, in the nineties, I used to do quite a lot of laser with our plastic surgeons when it was sort of becoming popular. And the honest answer is looking back, we had some very good results but some that were really not not that good at all. And I think most people in the UK have moved away from using laser at all and, and gone back to microsclerotherapy. But, the, but I know that I, all the other panel members are going to laugh at me when you hear what I often tell pa- patients is that I actually suggest to them, have they thought about using cam- camouflage cosmetics? Because actually they, for people who 
some people will come to you and say, look, we've got to go to this function and we want to have our legs out for the function. And I have to say, it, it, I think actually, if you can send somebody to an expert in camouflage cosmetics, they can actually do very well with, with that. And I, I can see Lowell smiling already. No, I absolutely agree with you. My mother, uh, may she rest in peace, did use camouflage. So um, that, there is an alternative there. But Steve, um, you know, as you know, in South America, they're using CLACS, which is a combination right. of sclerotherapy and laser and saying that the results are, are better. better right. That's not our standard here. And they're both art forms. So laser's an art form, sclerotherapy's an art form. And so, but, you know, there's not been any head-to-head -head trial uh, comparison. And I've urged the CLACS followers to, to do that. Yes, Ellen. And then we're going we're gonna to finish this segment on the tiniest of veins and move up a little bit in size. So go, Ellen. I think part of like my struggle when I treat superficial veins is figuring out how reticular veins or axial reflux does or does not contribute to spider veins. When you get a patient in the office who has spider telangiectasias on the lateral leg and you know, a four millimeter great saphenous with reflux on the medial side of the leg, I inject the lateral spiders. But is that really the same as someone who has no reflux? Or if they have a reticular vein complex underneath, do you really need to get all of that reticular vein complex? Or can you just get the telangiectasias? You ask five different vein practitioners, you get five different answers. And I think that's a good example of something that we just don't understand. Right. I think we don't understand the interconnection. I think there's a lot of people that that try and say you've got to take care of the bigger ones before the the, the spider treating the spider veins. You're not going to get as good results. But but I agree with you. We're going to move into the next thing, which is kind of the varicosities. I mean, I'm sure we've all had patients that we have have spider veins, and you do their varicosities and or their axial incompetence. And the spider veins remain. They, they, they don't. They don't disappear. They don't go away. And and you just brought up the, the other thing, Ellen, that somebody who has axial incompetence, but just spider veins, some people get really good results without treating the axial incompetence, and most of us would not treat that axial incompetence, right? Margaret, you're well, go, go, Ellen. Go. Well, I think it depends on where the spider veins are. If you have great saphenous vein incompetence, and some moderate-sized varicosities and spider veins, to me, I would treat all of those. But if you have great saphenous incompetence and just spider veins removed from that, I would probably just treat the spider veins if that's what the patient was there for. But we don't really know what the answer is. We all just kind of do what we think is right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Okay. Well, I, I was just going to come up with the statement. I think if somebody presents with pure spider veins and no obvious varicosities and no symptomatology, I think don't think you should do a duplex scan so you're not even left with the doubt as to whether you should or you shouldn't treat the underly underlying veins. You, you, right. you then don't get yourself into that dilemma. Right, that, that, right. That's, a, right. that's a bad place to be because then you're, you're chasing things. Um, I want to talk about varicosity treatment. Because basically, we've been doing the same thing for years, which is either injecting or pulling them out. And 
we pull them out in a little more elegant way now than, than you know, the big incisions that we used to do when uh, Al and I and Lowell were, were younger. But still, I'm, I hope you still don't do those big incisions to take out the varicosities. But, but it's the same thing. And that's what I meant when I'm saying, you know, superficial vein disease is dead long with superficial vein disease. Do we need a better way or are we so happy with the results that let's move on to something else uh, in terms of varicosity? Do, uh, do we have everything we need? Is this as good as we can get, Margaret? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I guess with the introduction of better foam, it does allow us to treat more comprehensively. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think our technique hasn't changed much. Um, I think the difficulty is it does recur, right? I mean, if there's recurrence, you need to let patients know. And I usually just treat what's visible. And then if they do get new ones, I treat it again. But, but, but it, doesn't it bother you? I mean, it, it bothers me. And it bothered Lowell, I, and Alan back in the mid-90s and, and early 2000s that we were ripping out the saphenous vein for hundreds of years. Doesn't it bother you we're doing the same thing to the varicosities that we've been doing for as long as we have all been in practice? That, that doesn't bother anybody? Don't you like to think about something new? Um, but yeah, Yes, but Neil is not always better, Stephen. And as no, you get old... I'm not saying and, and as you as you get older, you begin to appreciate that even more. Because yes. at the end of the day, we could go back to the argument that actually traditional surgery gives you exactly the same results as what we do now. And if you look at the tributaries, you either have to remove them or stick something in them, or you can decide that you want to sort of use HIFU or some other potential other technology which involves heating them. Now I'm I'm very much of the view that if I want to give somebody the cos best cosmetic result, I will phlebectomize them. If I have a more elderly patient with C4, C5, and C6 disease, and they're not that as fussed about their cosmetic appearance, I would be more persuaded to use foam sclerotherapy. Now, the other, the other technique that I just do think we all do need to discuss, and I think it does have some merit, is actually to to, fo to foam the varicosities and then to evulse them. And I think um, that's something that needs a bit more evaluation. I certainly don't do it on all patients, but there are one or two patients that I think, mm, it would be interesting to, to do this because they have quite a large array of varicosities and I, I do that and then, then evulse them. Now, whether that's the right thing to do or not, I have no idea. No, no, but there have been some some people presented good results that yeah. they, they really feel this this improves less residual, less staining, less you know whatever. So uh, there's not much downside to it, and there may be a positive side. Alola, what do you think of that technique? Oh, I think there is some merit to that, Steve. But if I could um, interject something, sure. I think we have really achieved um, the holy grail in terms of what we're doing with taking care of our patients, whether we use thermal, non-thermal, phlebectomy, foam sclerotherapy. But what we haven't achieved is patient comfort in terms of post-procedure. So that's what we're looking for. We're always looking to make our patients have a better post-operative recovery in terms of pain, bruising, and early uh, uh, return to activities. So that's where we're looking at. And now 
Alan mentioned Haifu. Um, essentially, that is a, a thermal unit, but now they've got a new uh, device, um, their second gen, which is very quick apparently and has less thermal. But we need a black box. We need a black box with no chemicals, with something that doesn't really create heat. It gets rid of the veins. And the patient doesn't have any pain or bruising post-op. So that's our holy grail. Now, the question is, do we need to go in that direction? And what's the cost of going in that direction? Yeah, Ellen, you had something to say. I wish that there was a laser available, sort of like the um, 1470 perforator laser, only in a much more flexible and even smaller uh, profile that you could sneak through reticular veins and ablate at low heat and get rid of those veins without having to inject them. Yeah. I've gotten away from injections and Alan, the next time we all get together over drinks, I would love to have you tell me how you avulse injective veins because that just sounds like an afternoon of hell. Um, but- He's talking about it's done simultaneously. Yes. Simultaneously. So you fill the bed of varicosities before you avulse them. So essentially you have, they were in spasm, they have less blood in them. And you, those you may have, quote, missed have been treated with the, with the foam. Uh, I, see. The I see. My mistake. I, yeah, yes. I assumed you would come back two weeks later and uh, try to evolve <laughs> uh, And it just sounded like terribleness. That, um, that does sound terrible. Yeah, exactly. That sounds terrible. But you know, something like a very small, sort of like a microcatheter when you are doing endovascular embolizations or something like that, that you could use in the periphery to snake through veins and ablate them with very low heat that would be enough to close the veins, but without causing any heat damage or any sort of staining and big thromboses that you see after injections. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good thing area to go to, and I but I do agree. I think the high food technique is going to get better. I think it really will get better over time. You know, it's it's very it's early on, and and um, I've been impressed with with it in terms of when it works. It just takes a long time right now. As Lowell said, they're, they're going to get faster, and technology will always get faster. Let me go on to the next thing: superficial axial incompetence. Do we have enough? Do we need more? We have, you know, thermals, non-thermals. We have, I, I, I counted, whatever, I had to give a talk recently. There's like, in the world, there's like 19 different technologies available to ablate the uh, great, small, or anterior saphenous, whatever you want to call it. Do we need any more? Margaret, do we need more? More of the same, more of something. No, I think, I think we've got plenty. I mean, it's great that we have non-thermal techniques now. Um, I mean, to Ellen's point, I love that it would be lovely for us to have a very small catheter that is heat-derived, but I would love something that wasn't thermal, that I didn't have to tumesce the patient, you know, for small reticular veins, something like many of the other techniques we have. Um, I don't know what's on the horizon. I would love to know if there's something new that would be different. So, but I think the techniques we have now is pretty good at doing what we need to do. I don't know that we need does anybody here wish they had another endovenous catheter? Lowell, you do? I do. 
I don't think we have a perfect device at this point to go forward. I think we need a combination. And it would be really nice if we had one device that could treat everything in terms of axial reflux. And for me, I would like a catheter that doesn't use chemical that um, is not permanent as well. So for me, as a patient, um, I would like something that doesn't hurt me uh, and that is not permanent, that takes care of my veins. And we don't have that yet. We yeah. have close, but we don't have it yet. Yes, Ellen. So maybe like a more effective phone is what you're wishing for, Lowell. I'm not sure what I'm wishing for, but I'm not sure that I'm appreciative of instilling a chemical if I don't need in my body. Right. So, Alan, should we should we give up the thought of destroying these superficial active veins, and rather should we consider making them work again? Well, I, I think the answer is we failed miserably at that. If, if you look at the original RF catheter, the whole concept of the original RF catheter was to restore patency, and right. all it's managed to do is make a lot of money for ablating the vein. Right. Every external wrap, and which was certainly popularized by people in Australia, Australia. the vena cuff, that really hasn't gone, any, gone anywhere. I, I, I did a, a, few, a few probably about 10, 15 years ago, because I thought it would, it would be interesting to see if I could use the cuff for the deep veins, but I thought it was worthwhile trying on a few superficial veins. I, I, th I, don't, I don't think we are there yet. And I sort of agree with Lowell's concept. While I'm a great believer that I think it, I prefer the thermal techniques for most big veins as opposed to glue or Clarivane. Yes, I accept below the knee, I, I like the other two. But I, I think the bit that we've failed with is actually to, have a catheter that can deliver heat but also deliver appropriate anesthesia at the same time and it shouldn't be beyond the wit wit of man that we could actually or, or woman i don't want anybody to i, I, I could see, see ellen just <laughs> we know, we know. Um, heckle, heckles rising that we couldn't actually have a way that we could actually freeze the area relatively pain-free then burn it. Uh, it, it it conceptually would to me be the the best way forward and I, again i don't i think the trouble with chemicals are that you can't actually quite control them and i would say i don't think we're i don't think varathena the commercial foams are any better than the homemade foams and so i don't think that, that the argument that you've now got a better foam to me personally doesn't hold at all because i think there, there is no evidence to suggest the results are any better and all I can see is it's a medical legal argument in, 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 the, US. in the US as opposed to anywhere else. But that's a personal view. And, but um, so, so those would be, be my comments. All right, let me, let me push you guys a little more on this. If you could, don't think about how you're going to do it. But if you could identify where valves are not functioning and you transcutaneously could, could make those valves function again, should it be a goal to try to restore, I'll use the, 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 the generic restore with a small R, would it be a goal to restore normal function to the saponous vein in a way that is completely non-invasive? 
forget about it. it'll never work so, kind of idea. The concept. Oh, the concept. The concept is brilliant. And as you know, there are a couple of our colleagues that are working on external compression using high aluron in a combination. So there's a, a firm in Turkey that's using something. And then Chris Rag is, is looking at that as well. So if, if we could do that uh, to be restorative as opposed to destructive, then we've hit a home run. Yeah. But anybody? Yes, Ellen. No. Come no. on. Just it's destroy. A, Ellen wants to destroy. Vein. It's a saphenous vein. It is easy to sacrifice. Don't spend one more penny or neuron thinking about it. Just okay. get rid of it. Use this technology to restore competence to the deep veins. Forget about the saphenous vein. Nobody ever died without a saphenous vein. That's okay. exactly where they're using it right now, Ellen, is in the deep system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Use well, it in the deep system. That's where it matters. You get more bang for your buck there. Yeah, I agree. Well, no, 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 no. Come on. Let's be slightly provocative here. Sure, <laughs> sure, surely, for all my American colleagues, this is the divine answer to their school fees that they can go, <laughs> go and sc screen. They'll find 35%, 40% of the population have an incompetent vein. You can have an injection to make your incompetent vein better. You'll never get varicose veins. Steve, you'll have a Rolls Royce times five at numerous institutions. There you hey, go. Hey, Alan, yeah. Professor Davies, uh, you have a private practice as well. So let's not go there. But, but, but wait a second. So this is going full circle to what the first question I asked you about. Are we good at preventing superficial disease? Okay. And Alan, you, I understand what you're saying. Forget the monetary part. I'm trying to get you guys to think like, you know, just... Uh, let your mind wander. If you could, seriously, if you could identify those individuals who are, as, as Chris Rock has shown and others, that are more prone to developing down the line venous insufficiency because of early changes you see on ultrasound or whatever else you want to do, is there something wrong with that in, in treating them so that they do not develop significant disease down the line? Because we do know that vein disease is not just a cosmetic issue, it's, it's a huge quality of life and it's a huge impact upon the, uh, the, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I, I'm going to bounce it back to you, Steve. Sure. If, if we say that 40% of the population will have incompetence in their GSV, we know that at least 5% of in, individuals at, before they get to the age of 18 will have incompetent valves in their right. truncal veins. Are you really going to say that what might actually be a variation of normality, we're actually going to go go and treat? And I think the obviously, if there was something very simple, you would do it. But then it would, there are so many other disease processes that you would say the same for. Right. I, but but, I, but that's, that's my point. In other words, why are you like just saying because I can't figure out how to do it? That's the wrong thing to do. In other words, if you have another disease that you have good evidence, if you give somebody this or this, they're, they're going to decrease their risk of getting it by 50% or whatever. That, I'm not saying, I, wouldn't, I just don't want to dismiss the idea of no. preventing superficial vein disease. Outright. I'll just, can I just say one final comment? And then which you won't be, then, uh, 
I cannot work out it in a month of Sundays how you'll ever make it cost effective. Okay, there you go. There, that's you. Know, some people see barriers and try and overcome them. You see the barrier and just decide it's there. Go, Ellen. <laughs> Every treatment we do has side effects and risks. Superficial vein disease is not a dangerous disease. I tell this to 15 patients a day that they're never gonna die of their superficial vein disease. Why would we do a prophylactic treatment for a non-harmful disease? This is a lifestyle condition. I would never advocate that we should do something prophylactic to try to prevent a lifestyle condition. If you get a lifestyle condition, we treat it. But, you know, there any person that we put a saphenous valve correction in, somebody's going to get a DVT and somebody's going to get a PE and somebody's going to die of that. I don't want that to be my patient. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand where you're going. And you guys know that I'm, I'm just pushing you to really just to, to, to push the envelope here a, a little bit because it's, it's easy to give the, uh, the party line all the time. If we look at the, that large portion of our, our patients have a genetic predisposition, and one of our colleagues was able to come up with a replacement in the DNA or genetic code, and we could obviate the billions of dollars that we're spending worldwide on venous disease, wouldn't that be cost-effective, Alan? No, because what you haven't told me by altering somebody's DNA as to what other disease processes they're, li they're, they're, they're likely to, to, to get. And I think you have to hold back. I'm and, being purist, actually. <laughs> but, I, but Lowell, I think the other comment I would pass to you is that um, what we don't know, and we haven't touched on this evening, is why somebody with gross trunkal incompetence and tributaries can have no symptomatology, no skin changes whatsoever. Whereas somebody has relatively mild truncal incompetence and has marked symptomatology. And I, I don't understand that. And I look at my legs and I get told I'm a bad advert for what I do by my wife, um, but I have no symptoms. And actually to that point, I do think with your thought experiment, Steve, I think if we could project those who not only has severe disease, but those who go on to develop ulcers, for example, yeah. that would be a great population to treat, right? I think we overall undertreat venous ulcers tremendously. And I think when Ellen was saying, hey, we're pretty much like an A in terms of early disease, I think we're pretty bad with ulcer disease. And I think that would be one area. I mean, I think we're probably D with ulcers. And I think if in that population, if there's some way we could predict those, I would be completely for, you know, early treatment of those patients before they get to that point. Yes. Okay. Go, Alan. That's a good, so, very good point, Margaret. Can, can, I, can I put a question to Margaret as a bit, bit being the dermatologist? My, 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 my view on venous leg ulcers, hypothetically, is that it is actually a skin condition as opposed to necessarily be, being a venous incompetence thing. I accept the two are linked, but what, what thoughts do you have on different skin types and the skin susceptibility to venous hypertension? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that we know enough about it. Um, several of my colleagues were studying 
um, metalloproteases, iron and various things. And I don't think we know enough about why. I mean, I, I don't know. And I don't know the literature well enough why some people are more susceptible to it than others. Um, I mean, I certainly do think that this is one area that we need to do more research on to predict who are the individuals that go on to develop venous ulcers and who don't. Um, Because it does baffle me. Some people I look at and I go, gosh, you look like you would be someone who would have severe disease. And they don't have any of it. They don't have any evidence of stasis derm. They don't have any evidence of lipodermatosclerosis, none of it. And other people you go, gosh, it doesn't look like you have venous disease. You know, but I look at your legs and they look pretty bad from the skin standpoint and I'll ultrasound you. And lo and behold, you do. And they don't have, you know, palpable varicosities. It is, it, it baffles me. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. What are your thoughts, Alan? Well, my thoughts are, because uh, we, we, we've done some work on metalloproteinases and metaponomics. And what was interesting, and it was a study that we did 30 years ago now with one of my first PhD students, that we actually found that there was a difference in the nerve fiber type in the skin that developed an ulcer as opposed to that that didn't. And we really didn't pursue it as well as we should have done for lots of different reasons and ethics of biopsying normal skin. But we found that there was some difference with SP10 proteins in um, the nerve fibers. So, and I accept you could take a slight argument, it was a chicken and egg scenario, but I, I actually do think it's more of an intrinsic defect within the skin and it's something we're doing some research on 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 at the moment no but that's what and that's what margaret and everyone was saying in other words if you could identify people with whatever markers you you have and say to them you have venous disease and you have this these two together give you x percentage of developing it we want to prophylactically treat you with with some nicer technology we could make that argument and treating the superficial disease would be good. So superficial Dave, disease. I think you're spot on. And we've done that with other diseases like breast cancer. And right. I think that you're spot on with that. And maybe that's that's where we should go. So the good thing is we've decided that superficial disease is not dead. Okay, you guys have decided that um, we still need to consider uh, treating this thing because we do have some challenges in, in the superficial space. and. Um, you know, we touched upon some that are practical, some that are pie in the sky, and some that really may be something to look forward to, to preventing, treating superficial disease, doing that to preventing more advanced disease down, down the line. So I could say that, you know, superficial disease is not dead, and we could say long-lived superficial disease, and we hopefully will be back here in a few years still talking about superficial disease because no one will have found a cure. If they do, we're out of a job. And uh, we got to find something else to do. So I want to thank all of you for, uh, for being part of the uh, Vein podcast. And um, we'll see everybody uh, next time. Thanks a lot, guys. It's been Pleasure. Thank Thanks very thank much. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's Vein podcast in association with Radcliffe Vascular. We aim to bring you important topics from the Vein world, either topics that we ourselves feel are important or you, our listeners, feel are important. So review us on your favorite podcast app or send your thoughts, comments, and questions to podcast at Radcliffe with an E-group.com. That's podcast at Radcliffe-group.com. You can also register to access newsletters, videos, and peer-reviewed journal articles. 
Thank you. Glad you listened. This is Dr. Steve Elias, and we'll see you on the next Bain podcast. Bain podcast.